The woods always did represent this sense of danger, but this also this sense of wildness. You know, if you go into the woods, you might also become a little bit wild. The brand new podcast, Digital Folklore, is an immersive experience that explores online culture, internet monsters, memes, and everything in between. Half documentary, half audio drama, hosts Perry Carpenter and Mason Amadeus dive deep into topics ranging from the absurd to the unsettling to create an accessible and entertaining way to learn about academic folkloric concepts and their corresponding societal truths. Sound familiar? It's true, our shows are kindred spirits, and I was lucky enough to have my voice be part of their first season. Today, we're gonna have fun discussing internet urban legends from Slenderman to the Momo suicide game and chat with each other as folklore nerds turned friends in the realm of the unreal and try, as we always do, to figure out what all of it really means. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Hello, Perry and Mason. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I know we have so much to talk about. We're here with Perry Carpenter. Say hello. Hey there. And uh, Mason Amadeus. Hey, hi. Thanks for having us. All right. Now that you've identified their voices, let's get started. Our shows are so similar. If you're not aware, listeners, these are the guys from the new show Digital Folklore, and it's all about what it sounds like, the strange things we find online and how they relate to urban legends and fairy tales and uh, how they can bring us the same kind of knowledge that moral panics can. They're all kind of in the same family, and so they are very much in the family of things that we study. So just to get started, I would love to hear... What is it that got you into folklore? Was there a story? Was there a childhood urban legend? What sparked this lifelong obsession? My answer, I wish, was a bit more poetic, <laughs> but it it was completely and entirely an accident caused by Perry, 100%. Because Perry was like, let's work together on some projects, and it sent over a list of, of names of shows. And just totally looking at them, the name Digital Folklore jumped out at me, and then it was like, well, that sounds interesting because that's like stories, right? And then looking into it and actually learning what folklore was really sparked just a deep love for it because it encompasses so much more than just any one kind of story we tell or any kind of old stories, but all of the ways that we communicate, the things that we keep alive just by having them in our sort of shared consciousness, whether that's trending memes or the ways we communicate on various platforms, just all of the different ways that we tell stories and the impact that that has is super fascinating, but it was entirely just driven by this would be an interesting project on the face of it from the name. And I had no idea what we were getting into. <laughs> yeah. So my love for folklore, even before I was calling it that, I think what came from this obsession with urban legends and the fact that so many stories get told over and over in these different and fractured ways and they 
have these elements of what you like to get into a lot, which is the moral panic that can cause a lot of these. But then they also reflect the different time periods and the different people that they come from. But I didn't know what to call it, really, even though folklore has always been this thing. I had this um, kind of idea that folklore was quilt making or food or fairy tales and things like that. Dances. Exactly. Until much more recently. But I had had a fascination with things like anthropology and sociology and archaeology and tons of other ologies. One of the things that I've done over the past 15 years or so is really focus a lot of my work on understanding online culture and online behavior and the human condition. And when I came to understand and see people talking about the fact that even memes are folklore and represent this new way of communicating and reflecting the human condition, it became a, a little bit of a unhealthy fascination, I would say. Absolutely. It's just this dovetail of so many different interesting things that at least I had no idea were related under the common umbrella of folklore. Yeah. Yeah, and I've I've got um, so my my day job right now is that I'm a cybersecurity professional, and then even to realize that folklore and the online manifestations of folklore even get into things that I've really been uh, dealing with on the cyber side for a long time, which is things like disinformation and misinformation and fake news and all of that, um, especially kind of brought to a head by a lot of the stuff during the pandemic and the 2016 election and ramping up to that as well. Why don't you guys just tell us a little bit about the format of your show as well, because it's different than a lot of shows that talk about folklore. Yeah, it's it's really fun. And I'm actually really excited about this aspect of it because it's really sound designed and created in such a way that it's all narrative. Right. So it's, it's almost like you're watching a cartoon that is also a documentary. So there's <laughs> slightly fictionalized versions of Perry and I. And the episode flow isn't just talk, but it's we're in a situation and we'll move through like there's an episode that'll be coming out soon where Perry and I are essentially exploring this pawn shop and we meet the owner of the pawn shop who's telling us about creepypastas. And then we happen to run into one of the people we interview. And so it transitions between this humorous, but also just sort of interesting narrative flow into these expert voices and insights in, in a way that's very much like a cartoon that I just absolutely love. It's a, it's a lot of fun to put together and I hope it's a lot of fun to listen to. Oh, it's a lot of fun to listen to. <laughs> We're getting really good early feedback on that. And then uh, if you listen to the show, you'll soon learn that uh, Mason's pet raccoon Digby steals the show every time he gets a chance to be on. And so um, one of the things that you'll start to realize as we go through the show is that, um, as Mason said, we do play these very exaggerated versions of ourselves that are actually a lot of fun to play into because I get to be this kind of overly pedantic scoutmaster type of person almost that likes to over-explain everything. Uh, Mason gets to be a little bit more like the free spirit that's trying to learn things as he goes and is a little bit disorganized. I'm a trash goblin. He's a trash <laughs> goblin. I was trying to avoid saying that. But... As we go through all of that, it gives us this interesting framework and world that we can introduce all these different characters in. We can bring in entirely fictional characters like the uh, the pawn shop owner who knows Mason's dad somehow and nice. has a back room where he's collecting things like old Polybius arcade games and taboo machines and everything else in that that is somehow bigger than the pawn shop itself. So there's this otherworldly dimension that's there and 
the pawn shop owner himself is maybe a little bit more than than he seems. And so a lot of this uh, allows us some interesting vehicles to create our own folklore. And then also, if you listen really, really closely, you'll start to see that there's maybe even more to that that you can pull out. It's about telling stories, right? So it kind of seems fun if we did it through the format of like a story. You're like a two-man Scooby gang. Exactly. Yeah. And you're out there like pulling masks off Slenderman and Momo and seeing uh, what's really underneath. <laughs> so, Perry, was there was there a particular online story that grabbed your attention that made you go, okay, I want to look into folklore as it is today, as it is in the teenage world? Was there something that just hit on that for you? Man, I wish there was like one because that would make it probably more interesting from a listener's perspective. (laughs) But for me, I think it was the realization that all these things that I've always thought about just from a humanity perspective and the way that people express themselves had these digital equivalents, which was for some reason something I had neglected, even though I live in the cybersecurity world and the technology world, but that the way that society carries itself forward um, has this kind of parallel reflection. But, you know, the the other thing, I think, is that there were so many little bits of stories that I would hear that, for whatever reason, I just wasn't interested in, Mm -hmm. that one day, all of a sudden, became way more relevant. You know, when I was back several years ago, when my kids were younger, hearing them talk about Slender Man and Momo and all these different fads and crazes and watching whatever was going on 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 TikTok and everything else, all of that kind of snapped into focus just about a year and a half or so ago. And it's like kind of the veil dropped a little bit. And I said, oh, you know what? All this stuff that I kind of tossed aside and thought maybe was um, just kind of irrelevant or maybe even a waste of time in in some ways is a reflection of what we are as humans and is calling to something it's trying to an- it's trying to supply answers to certain questions and is trying to ask other questions at the same time and when i realized that i think that's when i started to really get hooked into the digital versions of folklore and I think that that makes so much sense because Slender Man, which, of course, we're going to talk about, he's such a an archetype, a boogeyman. He's not new in his essence. He's just sort of this re-manifestation of an older villain, an older, what would you even call it? He, he is like, you mentioned tulpas, right? He's this thing, mm-hmm. a tulpa is something that you manifest with your thoughts. Yeah, it's com- more complicated than that, but you take this idea and you can give it a life of your own. And that's certainly what happened with Slender Man was like the giant collective youth consciousness sort of added their own parts to this legend until it grew so large that it spilled out into our world. Yeah. So did Slender Man remind you guys of any other legends that you knew before? The thing that I think is fascinating is that in almost all cases of, of like folkloric monsters, it's sort of an amalgamation. It's all crowdsourced in a way, mm-hmm. right? Because it's all changing as people make additions to it. So like some elements of Slender Man just immediately on their face are really common. The don't go into the woods or he's going to get you is mm-hmm. such such a trope of cautionary tales and things like that. The 
sort of, and I don't, I can't think of like a touch point for this specifically, but the like faceless businessman in a suit thing was mm-hmm. something I thought was very interesting. Kind of like the men in black. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the, that show up after paranormal experiences is like a longtime conspiracy theory legend. And it really reminds me of this. And here's here's a monster who is that. Mm-hmm. And the thing I think was was most interesting doing that that I learned when we were making that first episode was monster theory and like breaking down these elements of a monster and what different parts of them represent. Uh, because in a lot of ways, I feel like that's where these shared tropes come from is mm-hmm. that they're representing common fears or common cultural moments. Absolutely. Well, and you know the other thing that really struck me about Slenderman specifically is the fact that you know as people are coming together to fuel the legend of Slender Man, they were actually going back and and trying to create history. You know, you had people editing German woodcuts and things like that, that again, from my cybersecurity and information security background, when somebody goes back and messes with historical information, that's a really, really interesting thing. Um, And that does get into things like, you know, disinformation and misinformation and the way that people try to manipulate collective memory or collective evidence. And so, again, I was seeing these these worlds come together. But as Mason talked about, you know, the fact that Slender Man's wearing a suit, that he's larger than normal size, that he doesn't have a face, you can kind of project your own fear onto that. And we've seen ever since I was growing up and watching things like Twilight Zone, if you wanted to make something scary, remove its face, make it, you know, very, very stilted and kind of playing into the um, the uncanniness mm-hmm. of that where we supply our own fears. I was certainly going to bring up the Uncanny Valley immediately. And uh, this is such a silly tangent, but one of my only true phobias <laughs> is people on stilts when they're like wearing mm, the uh, stilt pants. They have to be wearing the stilt yeah. pants. I'm not scared if I can see their feet. But if it's like, you know, when you watch someone walk on stilts, it fills me with just a true terror that is unlike any other terror, except I'm very scared of spiders. And I think that there's uh-huh. some quality to that. And this is getting like real Freudian or Jungian, so please forgive me. But like the idea that we are hardwired to be afraid of things like spiders and snakes and that fear can be triggered in a person or it can kind of be like if you're a child and you hang out with snakes or spiders, you can kind of like calm that fear. But there's something in us biologically that is afraid of like that shape. And I think that the length of the arms and legs may have something to do with that part of ourselves. And that's just a, a totally out there theory that I have about Slenderman. But I think the faceless thing is so interesting because obviously I think it makes sense because, okay, you take away a face, then you can't see a person's intentions. Mm-hmm. And that's really scary. You don't know if this person's a friend or a threat. You can't read their face. And yet that is sort of what now we are doing every day with each other online. That's a really good point. And we, we get into all these things about yeah, when you get kind of a bland message, you read into that message your own emotion, your mm. own intention, and it could be a totally neutral message. And you read it in one mood one day and come away with one meaning. And then you go have lunch, feel a little bit better, come read it again, and you come away with an entirely different meaning. That's so true. <laughs> I think playing into the shape, too, it is interesting that these fears that we would have evolutionarily of dangerous creatures and things like that 
stealing aspects of those and projecting them onto monsters we've created as a way to make sure that you get this. No, this is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And also, here's the other things about it that we think are dangerous. I think that's interesting. And also, I don't think the stilts thing is too odd because it's wrong. It's broken. It's not right. I agree with you. It's horrible. Well, there's, I mean, there's a couple other things that come with that, though, is that it also plays into, so not only taking kind of the spiderness of that or the the insectile piece of that, but then changing a human a little bit and increasing the otherness of that. Mm-hmm. So naturally, our fear of anything new or anything different and all the prejudices and baggage that we bring with that gets cast onto that thing. And I don't know if I can trust it. In fact, I'm going to be afraid of it. Yeah. And you could say that we feel that way about each other now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that ties directly into, I don't remember which one, because I don't have that great of a memory of exactly what it is. But one of the theses in Jeffrey Jerome Cohen's monster theory is that the difference of the monster, there's a difference that is made into a monstrous difference Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and amplified in some way. More after this. The rumors are true. I do enjoy a feel-good meal I can slip into the microwave and watch it spin, especially when that meal is personalized and delivered right to my door. With Factor, there are a whopping 35 different pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals of all kinds with the welcome addition of over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons. We're talking two-minute restaurant-quality meals, as well as smoothies and snacks and so much more to enjoy at home or on the go. Baby, we've done the math. Factor's fast, upscale, ready-to-eat meals are less expensive than takeout and a whole lot faster when you are hungry right now. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule your deliveries anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off. If you're like me, you've been shopping in the boys section for too long, and let's just say there is a limit to the quality you will find there. But just imagine upgrading your wardrobe with actual luxury essentials at unbeatable prices, like 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I ordered my partner an oversized cable cardigan, and I got a Milano-stitched oversized shirt jacket. But then they were so cute and honestly nicer than anything I own, so now we are swapping them whenever I say so. So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com hysteria for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash hysteria to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash hysteria. And now, back to the show. 
As you mentioned in your episode, one of the big themes is the Internet is the new woods. And I completely agree with that, meaning, you know, the the woods on the edge of town that you're told not to go into because a monster lives there. When you're a kid, there is some form of boogeyman explained to you generally, unless you have very new age parents, (laughs) (laughs) that is a warning. Like you said, it's something that makes us heed the collective group's instructions and culture, which includes keeping the young people safe, right? So when we think about the internet as the new woods, uh, would you want to speak a little bit more about that? I have a very quick comment, and it's just that that was your phrase. Yeah, you set that up. (laughs) Yeah, that was you. So thank you for that, because that framed the entire thing. Heck yeah, I didn't fully realize that. Not to uh, ask you a question about myself, but I didn't know that. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I I think uh, my insight needs more commentary. (laughs) (laughs) Right. No, but it was really good. And it's, it's a really good way to think about it, because in terms of like, what is unexplored, this digital world that we have, especially particularly around the time when when Slenderman was coming to be, is this mysterious, dangerous thing. And, you know, it still is in a lot of ways, but particularly that thinking was very common that, like, don't trust anything that you see on the Internet. Don't talk to people on the Internet. And I mean, there's an irony to it, too, right? Because, like, our parents were always like, never trust anyone on the Internet. They're all fake. And now our parents are the ones that are like, hey, some guy just said all I have to do is buy four Bitcoin <laughs> right. or whatever. <laughs> Maybe not four yeah. Bitcoin, that's a lot of money, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind having four Bitcoin a year ago, especially. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's it. Is It is our natural fear of the unknown. And when you when you flash back to a lot of the, the literature tropes that we were taught growing up, is that the woods always did represent this sense of danger, mm-hmm. but this also this sense of wildness. You know, if you go into the woods, you might also become a little bit wild as well. You might go in there and do things that you're not supposed to do outside of the eyes of the the community. Um, And so there's both of these sides. You might go in there and something terrible happened to you, or you might go in there and you might do something that is considered terrible in the eyes of the polite society that's there. And I think that in the internet world, it's the same thing. You might go out there. It is the wild west of the internet still. You might get taken advantage of. You might have something horrible happen and be exploited in, you know, totally different ways and ways that scale more and faster than ever before, as we've seen with a lot of the uh, the horrible things that have happened to people online. But you also might go and you might take your own mask off a little bit and indulge in that thing. And that's a little bit scary, too. Man, I'm yeah, I, that was great. I'm so interested in that idea because I've mostly thought of the woods as the place that you go and something bad happens to you. But now that you're saying that, it's like so many of our quote unquote satanic rituals, right, that teenagers were apparently doing mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s were usually out in the woods, right? It's like they crossed some kind of threshold. Yeah. And now they are like part of the wildness, which represents for us like the great terror that we're trying to avoid is the fact that 
there's like this chaotic world that we're actually naturally a part of, but we don't want to think about that because we're Protestant Puritans right. <laughs> and we want to, you know, be as far away from that wilderness as possible. And I mean, I even think that this is totally a tangent, but I think of how the Puritans in early America didn't believe that babies should crawl on the ground because it made them look like animals and it was too wild for mm. them. And so they made these horrible contraptions that forced infants to like walk on these wooden wheel things. What? Yeah, I was going to say, how did I not know that? <laughs> because we have forgotten so very much <laughs> in American history. But right, and that's the thing is, it's like the terror of the wilderness was so great. And this idea like America was here to conquer the wilderness, which of course meant conquering other human beings as well in the eyes of those who were coming here. Right. But it was uh, something that we wanted to just like beat down and beat away from us and say, we're better than this. We're better than this thing that's inside us that we're, you know, the shadow self or whatever. We're better than that. And uh, I think that the Internet really does work on that same level of like you can go in there and you can do terrible things that you'd never otherwise do because you're like shielded from the rest of polite society. Yeah. And and when you think about it, the Internet is itself, it's a liminal space as well. So it also has this other mystery of it is constantly becoming and it is this constant thing of you both know it and you don't know it at the same time. And so that creates its own mystery and wonder and danger simultaneously. Yeah. And I, I think something about that liminalness is also just very intriguing because unlike the woods, the internet is not a place you can actually physically go. You can't be in immediate physical danger from engaging with the internet in any literal sense. Like I can't log on to oopsanife.com and then get stabbed through my computer <laughs> screen. You know what I mean? Oopsanife.com. If that domain is available, I will purchase it. Um, yeah, I'm looking that up right now. Okay. Hold on. But I think that that puts it in this interesting space of it is always the unknown. You can't explore the internet, cut down the trees and build a target plaza in the internet. You can't change it. I mean, in some ways, I guess you can, right? Because there's a lot of consolidation on the internet. There's uh, big platforms that are taking over. But for the current moment, I guess, knock on wood, like the internet is always something that you cannot fully understand and comprehend or explore or map all of. Absolutely. And we still haven't mapped all of our wilderness either out here. So Right. Oopsanife.com is available and I'm buying it right now. Does it cost like $1? <laughs> yeah, it, well, one cent. Cool. <laughs> With a two-year registration, so... <laughs> All right, cool. I will, I'll will. i make a little piece of content that we can put up there and then we'll redirect it to uh, this episode or something. It's perfect. Perfect. Right. You get 20% off your knife with <laughs> right. American, right. the code American Hysteria. <laughs> Use yeah. American Hysteria at oopsanife.com. <laughs> but then is it truly an oops? <laughs> oops, a knife. It's wonderful. Um, okay. So now that we've established the woods and the internet and all those sorts of things, why don't we talk about ostention, which is mm. something you guys really Whoa. cover in your first episode and something that I find totally fascinating. I find it very beautiful as someone who loves urban legends and loves the way that they can kind of seep out into the real world and how it kind of seeps back again. And, you know, there, there's this complicated interplay of forces between. Well, let me let you explain what ostention is first. 
It's interesting because there's like a couple of different flavors of it, but basically it's when real life happenings parallel the events in a pre-existing narrative, like a, a legend or something. So in the case of the Slenderman stabbings that happened, that is actually the flavor of ostension that falls under pseudo-ostension, which is when people are aware of the original narrative. But in some ways it doesn't. The, the lines get a little blurry because there's mm -hmm. like there's ostension, quasi-ostension, and pseudo-ostension. At least to my knowledge, I'm, I'm not an expert, but from all the people we've talked to, quasi-ostension is like interpreting ambiguous events in terms of a legend. So like a lot of media panics are based on that, where it's mm -hmm. like, oh, we believe there's a man in a van. We believe this was like gang activity or this was an occult thing. Yeah, like an example of that maybe would be uh, some teenagers spray paint Hail Satan under the bridge, right? And then that right. is interpreted. Would that be a good example of that? Yeah. It's interpreted as real, real cult, not just teenagers being stupid. Be exactly, because it's a very ambiguous thing and not a particular legend. Whereas okay. like direct ostension would be a real life happening, paralleling something that happened in well-established legends. But the people who carried it out weren't like, let's go act out this legend. Yeah. So uh, really the Slenderman ones in particular, I think may fall under the, and this would be something I'd want to ask someone who really studies folklore. They may fall under this because the people who, who carried them out were children and also, you know, suffering with extraneous circumstances and things that made understanding the, the depth of their actions not possible. But it, it's when a story comes to life in, it doesn't always have to be in dark ways either. The focus on Slenderman and that is just the darker side of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and on the dark side of those, there are so many examples of that is, is you hear the legend of Bloody Mary. And then so that is the legend. That's the folklore that's there. And then the ostension of that is you in a, you know, with a group of your friends in the house standing in front of a dark mirror and saying Bloody Mary three times. It is the physical manifestation of your understanding of the legend or the kind of the way that the collective consciousness of that is put the legend into your mind, whether you know it's a legend or not. But it's one of the ways that folklore like directly affects the real world because it's always from a story to the real world. So like, for example, there's, a you know, several legends out there that say there's a chair in this graveyard, right? And if you go sit yeah. in this old stone chair that's also a grave, you know, you'll go to hell or something, right? And so that would be ostension if you were a teenager and you decided to go and test that paranormal idea yeah definitely okay okay well and ostension for me until i actually started studying folklore a little bit more from an academic perspective and i'll i'll say this really clear neither myself nor mason are academic folklorists no we don't have degrees in this we're kind of on this journey right learning as much as we can but it was only when i took a class in folklore at harvard over the summer just so i could get up to speed a little bit and feel competent that i heard the word ostention for the first time and then i started to realize oh we actually see that word embedded in other words like ostentatious when mm -hmm. people are trying to make a show of something or ostensibly uh, because of something. So I think you can understand when you start to see how that how that word has been used or derived in other ways, kind of the the idea that's behind it. But the other thing that was really interesting to me when it came to ostention, again, from the cybersecurity perspective that I've come from, is we always talk about when it comes to things like cyber warfare, at what point does 
digital warfare spill into physical warfare. Mm. You know, if I shut down a power grid, that was a digital action that now has physical consequences. So there was this interesting, ostensive type of idea that I had already been playing with for a couple of decades. Wow. Yeah. I would love if you wanted to say any more about, because that's something I hadn't really uh, put the pieces together on, where if you're thinking about ostension, I've been thinking about it in terms of urban legends mostly, and and that's a lot of fun. But can you give us an example in cybersecurity of ostension as maybe it relates to conspiracy theories or anything in that digital realm? Yeah. Ooh. There was also that story from Betty. That's exactly where I was going to go with that. So I've got lots of stories that that I had come across on my own, but one that ties in with a person who we're going to have a segment of her interview for is Betty Aquino. Yeah. So we were talking with uh, Betty Aquino, who is a graduate student at George Mason University. And she presented at the International Society of Contemporary Religion Research over this last summer. And... The thing that she had presented on was this, you know, if you if you're on Facebook groups or have the neighborhood app or anything like that, you tend to see these little rumors get started. Mm. And in the increasingly fractured and polarized society that we are in, we also see these moral panics spin up. So around the time of of Halloween, uh, she had received a notification I think it started out through text message, uh, but somebody had seen it in a different way first of, oh, we have to worry about, you know, we've heard that ISIS is coming to town and they're planning an attack against X. Mm -hmm. And that turned like several things do once they're already in a digital format, it turned kind of like into this chain letter. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the grandfather got that. They send it out to three other people. Uh, those people get a little bit spun up. And now all of a sudden, news stations are reporting about an impending ISIS engagement in this neighborhood God. or at this local oh. supermarket that may happen. And so all that started to, to spin up. And of course, some of the things that we had seen uh, years ago is that when those type of panics spin up, they may start as a digital rumor. But that can spill out into real physical violence as people start to say, oh, that person looks like they may be with ISIS. Right. Me and my buddies are going to go beat them up, you know, tell them them whose area this really is. So luckily, it didn't spill over into that. But I think we've seen that over and over and over again. And we know that those types of things, when we spill these digital rumors that have the ability to spread at seven times One interesting study that I had seen, I can probably pull the report name, is that it's been shown that on Twitter, this was an MIT study, they showed that falsehoods generally go seven times faster than truth. I remember that study. Absolutely. Yeah, because when you're building that type of falsehood, you're usually going with some kind of you know, preconceived bias. You're you're inflaming an emotion. You're poking somebody's bias in some way. And so people get riled up and they share that. Whenever we start to see these digital rumors go out and misinformation and disinformation go out, it's playing on all of that. And of course, that can spill over into the physical world as people then take all that digital information into their mind, inflame their own biases, and then go out and act that out on the street. So we see that. But then we also see in the Russia-Ukraine war Mm -hmm. that's been going on. We see uh, the Ukrainian government especially using meme warfare very, very well. If you look at the Ukrainian government's 
Twitter page, especially at the very beginning of the incursion, they were using memes, I mean, just like masterfully and just poking Russia, getting people on their side and not in ways that looked like our government doing it, in ways that looked like mm-hmm. a 15-year-old that really knew what they were doing when it comes to kind of poking somebody at their most vulnerable spot online and really kind of showing the power that the medium has to really inflict, and I, I think I'm using that term intentionally, to inflict opinion mm-hmm. in a very interesting way. Yeah. That's exactly the kind of thing that really just blew my mind about the fact that this is folklore and folklore has this incredible value in being studied academically because it has so many real world impacts, but it's the kind of thing where everyone, when they hear the word folklore is not going to think about this kind of thing, but really all of these narratives that we tell each other, uh, the way we share information amongst our groups informally is so vastly important and has very real world consequences. But I would never have thought to put the label folklore on studying that kind of thing before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then one other digital to physical version of this is um, when people start to organize using things like Facebook or Twitter, mm. coded language to do stuff like flash mobs. You know, I've, I've got all of this information going out and people that know the right things to look for then all of a sudden start to organize in the right way to have this physical expression of in a flash mob what could be a wonderful thing. But if you take that and turn it a little bit, it could also be a very dangerous thing. And of course, we see that in different uh, groups using those types of things for lots of forms of recruitment or to take out a physical action in a devastating way as well. More after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the show. And the thing about folklore is that it's more than just a single story, right? It's like a constellation of stories that come together in these chaotic ways, and you can pull part of it, you can alter a little bit, and then that changes everything, right? And I think of Slenderman when I think of even conspiracy theories and how those get started, because we start with just uh, somebody creates Slenderman. What's his name? Victor Surge. Victor Surge. Gotta give credit where it's due. Creates these original images of Slenderman, and then the inner internet collectively at first consciously because it was a creepy pasta which people are you know supposed to understand is not real but you suspend your disbelief because it's really fun to be creeped out by things that are not actually dangerous obviously until they are but you had people contributing 
their own stories. You had people, as you mentioned, creating like old German woodblock art to show that this creature has actually been around for 200 years or whatever it was. And uh, it just seems like people have created an entire architecture to support this one story. And that seems pretty similar to what is happening online. And I imagine that that's something that you have seen a lot in your work with cybersecurity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And there's actually, like any discipline, there's entire uh, mythologies that come up around cybersecurity. May not be all that interesting to get into, but, you know, when people say cybersecurity, immediately there are images that come to mind for people. There are things like uh, people in hoodies. There's green text on black screens. All of that is kind of the mythology and the folklore of the discipline. And people can play into that in certain ways whenever they want to induce fear, or they might play into that in certain ways if they want to induce trust, and they'll use iconography like locks and shields and and all of that. So I would say that everywhere that you turn, every discipline that you look at, there's, there is a folklore around that thing. And the, the one that I've kind of centered my life on for a really long time happens to be cybersecurity. That's cool. Yeah. All of this too, there is the phenomenon of astroturfing, yeah. which... I think is fascinating because that is faking folklore and it's so powerful as a tool of disinformation because it's astroturfing. I also love the name because it comes from fake grass because you're trying to make a fake grassroots movement Mm -hmm. by creating either a lot of bot accounts or having a lot of people paid to make a lot of posts online that look like there's a genuine groundswell grassroots movement towards some kind of goal or ideology or support of something. And it's done because it's effective because the power of folk communication this as you said a constellation of informal communication building this architecture to support this idea just is so human and goes right to our trust systems and bypasses them in a certain way mm-hmm. it's fascinating and it's as you mentioned folklore it just sounds like a snore fest but uh it really is when you say urban legends, I think people are more uh, likely to to snap to attention and want to want to talk about those. And to talk about another urban legend, another moral panic that you guys covered that we've also covered in detail, I'd love to just talk a little bit about Momo um, for those of you listening who are somehow uninitiated into the Momo world. Uh, Momo was this internet panic over a really strange looking piece of art that was basically like a really scary, smiling woman with stringy hair and giant eyes and then chicken legs, which really added like a folklore twist to me, like a Baba Yaga in the woods look. And then the idea was that children and teenagers were getting text messages or messages on the internet from this creature slash, you know, perhaps murderer, whatever we want to think, that was basically asking them to do more and more intense challenges that culminated in their suicide. And this is not a new story. We heard this with uh, the Blue Whale Challenge. It's kind of a tale as old as time. And, and as we've talked about it, and you guys also talk about, really, it was a moral panic that existed to distract us or give us maybe an image for our fear around teenage suicide and how that has been on the rise and, and why we don't want to deal with that in the ways that would actually uh, help 
by um, putting money into mental health care, by paying more attention to the needs of our kids, etc. Um, instead, it's it's this scary monster that is commanding all of this chaos, you know, some evil being that has special powers. And then you get Kim Kardashian out there <laughs> tweeting it out or putting a post on Instagram and then bam, that's all it takes. And and it's everywhere. So uh, and I, I just thought it would be fun to say I went to talk at a uh, high school recently. I got invited, nice. which was really fun to talk about moral panics and things like that. And somebody raised their hand and asked me, is Momo real? Mm. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. Don't worry. It's okay. But even now, yeah, it seems like kids aren't certain about this thing. And I think that that goes for a lot of things where you just kind of fade out from it, right. and, and but it still sticks around. So what about Momo kind of drew you in and said, okay, this has to be a topic on our podcast. So there's a couple fun bits in that. So first thing to give you credit again, this was another line that you had that really stuck with us in the episode <laughs> is that you called Momo a creepy chicken footed suicide enchantress. And <laughs> yeah, that does sound like me. <laughs> that is the most amazing description of Momo ever. Easily. But the reason that, uh, that it stuck with us it, and really needed to make it into episode one is kind of funny. As we were thinking about the show, there were a couple things that Mason and I kept coming back to. So we want this to be about digital folklore and online stories and all all the fun things around memes, but then all the darkness of creepypastas. And both of us kind of for the first month that we were developing the show said, we do not want to touch Slenderman or Momo because they've been talked about to death. Mm -hmm. And then... As we spoke to everybody in the folklore community, they raised Slenderman and Momo as the preeminent examples of what folklore does on the Internet for our generation. And so we felt like it would almost be neglectful not to talk about Slenderman and Momo. And for very similar reasons is that they epitomize the moral panic piece of this. And they epitomize the fact that we get into these kind of self-referential quagmires where because I heard somebody talk about Momo and the fact that this happens, now I believe it and now that's going to leak to a news source and now that news source is going to present on it and now because I've seen the news source present on that, um, now it must be true and it, it becomes this kind of whirlpool to hell type of, of thing because it continues to swirl in on itself regardless of whether there's truth to it or not. Absolutely. Uh, something interesting, I just flipped through the notes. For that episode, I had actually spent a while tracking down the timeline of Momo because the phenomenon of Momo was really interesting to me because there is so actually little to go off except for the story that formed after, mm. like mm -hmm. the idea that there was this creature that you could message on WhatsApp and then it would slowly tell you to commit suicide. There's like no screenshots of conversations with Momo. There's only people talking about those existing. I managed to track down like an original Momo WhatsApp number on a 4chan board uh, screenshot, but like going all the way back, someone posted the sculpture in 2016 to Instagram. And then two years later in 2018, someone uploaded a crop of that Instagram picture to r slash creepy on Reddit mm. where it got some upvotes. And then the like whole screenshot story thing, I could not track down 
any like supporting information, it's almost as though someone just made up that idea and then people started ostensing it by posting uh, that this had happened. It made it into the news in the Buenos Aires Times that a 12-year-old girl committed yeah. suicide and police suspected the Momo challenge was the cause. But that was after everyone had just made this up. Like There was so little supporting data. Uh, and then it, it even came back, because that was in 2018, but the time most of us remember was 2019 yeah. after Kim Kardashian posted that Instagram story when they were talking about Momo being spliced into children's videos on YouTube, which there was also no evidence right. of, except for this like one-off thing that was found on a Facebook video. But then talking about extension again, after that was reported, people started doing it. Yeah, somebody just did it because they heard about it. They were acting out the legend. Exactly. Right. They quasi-ostensed it. Yeah. Um, so it, the thing that was fascinating for me was that there was there was like so little that actually happened and it was just the afterburn of like, oh, this was, I'm trying to find the right words to put it in, like the actual thing of the story really like never happened and then it was just the... Uh, legend of it which is i guess true for a lot of things but you would expect to be able to track down something more than what there is i guess absolutely right well and i i think that that's really interesting though when you talk about that form of ostention you get that thing that becomes self-referential right is people hear about it so then somebody then decides to act it out and then because somebody decided to act it out then for many people that reinforces that first truth and that becomes a very interesting and dangerous game to play because we don't know where that necessarily leads us. I'll, I'll give you one interesting example is in addition to Slenderman, which is, you know, Slenderman's an online creation, no quote unquote truth to it, or you know, regardless of all the things that people have pushed into the lore of Slenderman, and yet two people that are psychologically you know, having having difficulties, did go stab a friend. Mm -hmm. um, and so then for a really big group of people, that shows that Slender Man and the internet and everything else is inherently dangerous. We did that episode on Slender Man and talked about Momo and, and really kind of brought through the history that shows that there was nothing really there with Momo. But then somebody did contact me who is a therapist that I know and said that one of her patients actually did like slice her own face because she believed that Momo told her to. Oh my gosh. I don't know if that was somebody kind of doing that copycat where they, you know, maybe got a WhatsApp number or a, a Facebook messenger address and then was posing as Momo or if that person in their own mind decided that Momo had told them to do something. But we do get these little, you know, circular issues with all of this where you have the original, uh, there's nothing to it. People talk about how bad it could go because people talk about how bad it could go. Somebody then decides to act it out in some way. And then that just reinforces the perceived truth of the first thing. Oh, absolutely. Well said. Okay, so we've talked about what your show's about, and we've talked about ostension and how these things all feed each other and how dangerous that can be, how fun that can be. I'm wondering why you both, I know it was kind of a, a fluke that you came together and decided, we're going to make this show, it sounds really fun, but as you're making it even, what is it about this topic that you feel like really matters and why are you putting so much time and effort into talking about these types of things, as I do? I think it was put really well by Gina Jorgensen, and I'm going to paraphrase badly. 
in her book, Folklore 101. And it's that studying folklore allows us to have an idea of what is going on in our common consciousness because the stories are only kept alive by people talking about mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. It's a way of knowing what is important to us culturally at any given moment through the stories we are telling informally to each other in all of these different ways. And it has such real world impacts in, in, the, in the ways that we've gone over and over in everything we've been talking about today. It's vastly important, the power of narrative. Yeah. Not just in terms of creative narrative, like something like Slenderman, which starts out as a story, but even just in the narrative of how we communicate to each other about political and social issues, the ways we talk to each other and our friends, the foods we serve at holidays with our families. I think it's just the fact that it reaches so far into all of these different things and it's studying what we are keeping alive just by giving attention to mm. is, is something that is so endlessly fascinating to me. And the study of it is very important because we can learn a lot and notice patterns in a lot of behaviors and things like that. If you want to look at it from a, like a utilitarian standpoint, when you see like a, a news story happen and they interview a folklorist and they compare it to uh, local legends or other stories or other behavioral patterns and other things, that is such a valuable perspective to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can't add anything any more eloquently <laughs> than, than Mason just did. But, you know, some fun things to think about is that with folklore and especially the digital representations of it right now is that we do really get to see what the cultural moment is. And some of the fun examples of that is like, you know, after the 2020 election and all the horror and emotional turmoil of that, then to see this meme of Bernie Sanders and his mittens go crazy. <laughs> and it doesn't matter who you are on earth, what political party or anything else, you're sharing that because it is fun. Uh, and you're seeing all these different variants of it come out. And for a few minutes, at least, or even a few days or a few weeks, that is uniting people at a different level than all these other things that tend to divide us. And we do know that folklore can be used to divide people like crazy, but it is fun to see these things where it unites people. And when you see a really fun and interesting TikTok trend, and then everybody have their own spin on that. It's really, really interesting to see that the dynamic variation of that and the joy that that brings to people to tell their own story with whatever that thing is. The thing for me when it comes to folklore is that I think it helps us understand who we are as humans on this planet. And that's really kind of been my personal quest for about 20 years or so, because uh, I started realizing fairly early in life that my thinking, um, the way that I perceive the world is a little bit different mm -hmm. uh, than most. And about seven, eight years ago, I was diagnosed as, as being on the autism spectrum. And uh, I think that when you trace a lot of the things that I've been studying for a long time, it's really been about trying to understand why humans do the things that we do and why we think the things that we think and why we perceive and interact the way that we do. And I think that folklore is the boiled down version of all of that. And so it will be continually fascinating for me as I try to figure out, you know, everything about what it is to be human. 
Wow. It's the social metadata, right? It is. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. Social metadata. I'm going to hold on to that one. <laughs> I don't think I came up with that. I feel like I heard someone say that in relation to something else, but it, that phrase really just sticks out in my brain. Yeah, it's great. I'm going to look up social metadata now on socialmetadata.com. <laughs> yeah. Redirects to oopsanife.com. <laughs> yeah. It's a dangerous world out there. This was American Hysteria. If you'd like ad-free early episodes of our show, you can become a patron and you'll also get access to a second podcast called Hysteria Home Companion, where producer Miranda and I tell stories that didn't make it into the episode. In our most recent episode, I told Miranda all about the sensational and radically gay life of the Oscars streaker. Just head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria, and you'll also be supporting our show. This episode has sound design by Clear Camo Studios, was edited and produced by Miranda Zickler, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Thanks, as always, for listening. And be careful out there in the great internet wilderness. You truly never know what you might find. Or what might find you. Have a great day.